Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. Welcome to an important conversation, which we might distill as a conversation about safety, about creating safe spaces for all those who make up our health systems and those who are served by it. While I have no intention to steal our guest's thunder because he's broadly regarded as the pioneer of the model we will discuss today, the crux of the conversation is one based on justice. Most of us who have worked in any high-consequence industry have come into contact with some version of accidents, incidents, near misses, or lost time. I myself spent a few years working in mining where the culture was quite literally about safety first. Those were the signs installed everywhere for all to see and the key performance measure was the number of days without an incident. But as we're all taught at the earliest age, accidents happen. And when my son was younger and something bad happened, he would quickly call the incident an accident and as a way to avoid blame and shame. And when asked to stop doing something that was dangerous and before something happened, however, he was also quick to defend himself from consequence because in his mind and through his words, something bad hadn't actually occurred. So throwing snowballs at people wasn't a problem if no one lost an eye, right? But we all quickly learned as parents that if our son feared the consequence yet couldn't stop himself in the behavior, he was also highly disposed to lying about it. While parenting isn't in fact the topic of today's conversation, it does, I think, set the context for a conversation about how we as health leaders can foster a culture that manages risk, safety, and accountability, and produce high reliability organizations and systems that will lead to better outcomes for all stakeholders. So with that, let me introduce you to today's guest, David Marks, who will take us through all of this and much better than anyone else. David Marks is a CEO of the Just Culture Company, a US-based risk management firm. David has a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Systems Engineering and also is a Juris Doctor in Law. David's firm currently spends the majority of its effort on helping high-consequence organizations develop values, supportive practices, and culture. In the healthcare sector, David has been working to help healthcare institutions and regulatory agencies reduce the risk of iatrogenic patient harm. He was on the board of advisors for the National Patient Safety Foundation and won the Institute of Safe Medication Practices Lifetime Achievement Award for his work on medication safety. In the area of healthcare safety culture, David authored the document Patient Safety and the Just Culture, a primer for healthcare executives for the National Institutes of Health, and is considered the father of just culture in contemporary healthcare. So hi, David, and welcome to the HQ. Dale, it's a pleasure to uh, participate, and I look forward to uh, the podcast. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's going to be a great conversation that should get a lot of people thinking and talking, which I think is really the most important part of this. So perhaps we could start the conversation with your own context setting, if we can. Uh, before we start talking about just culture, can we sort of, I guess, maybe set a bit of a baseline in terms of what is a traditional culture, you know, in the absence of just culture? Um, how was, you know, how do, how does that sit in terms of the antithesis of what we're going to talk about and how are mistakes uh, managed in that? Yeah, D Dale, when I was, uh, you know, early on in my career, I was a Boeing aircraft engineer and I helped 
uh, our Boeing clients try to reduce the risks of aircraft accidents. And one of the problems aviation had, as, as many high consequence industries do, is that we didn't really have learning cultures. We didn't have what we'll talk about in terms of psychological safety. We didn't have a, an ability for people to raise their hand and say they've made a mistake. Uh, so uh, my early start of the just culture work was in aviation where we said, how do we get a pilot to report? And, and we even say that in the aviation space, what happens in the flight deck stays in the flight deck. So mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a very closed culture where people couldn't raise their hands. Uh, come over to healthcare. Uh, Dr. Lucian Leap, who was uh, one of the fathers of the patient safety movement in, in U.S. healthcare, testified before our Congress. He said, the single greatest impediment to error prevention in the medical industry is that we punish people for making mistakes. He said it was his culture at Harvard that physicians would report only what they could not hide. So, uh, you know, it's very similar to talking about your son in this case. It's, it's mm -hmm. that culture we, we grow up in. So, there were two pieces we were facing. One is healthcare and, and across industries, but healthcare in particular being a very punitive culture that when bad things occur, uh, we, we go after the individual, at, as, as Jim Reason might say, at the pointy end, the nurse on the floor, the pharmacist, uh, the physician. So we've had criminal prosecutions in the U.S. where a nurse, uh, a nurse a few years ago at Vanderbilt made a mistake and got pr criminally prosecuted for that medical error, because in at some level as a society, we've turned human error into a crime. It's been the last couple hundred years, but when you when you've heard those words, uh, criminal negligence is the is the code language that lawyers will use, but yeah. it's really criminal human error. So we so on one hand we've turned human error into a crime. Uh, the other piece that we've had to deal with. Uh, relative to high reliability is the other factor you talked about with your son, which is no harm, no foul. Uh, we have a tendency to turn a blind eye to risky behavioral choices until uh, that, that risky behavioral choice causes harm. It, it, particularly in the physician space, we'll, we'll use that word autonomy. It's, it's really tied back to liberty. It's, it's that you're not going to tell me what to do if I haven't caused harm. So I want to retain my autonomy. Then when harm has occurred, we have that very punitive culture because the, 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 the broader world, the press, and actually us as citizens, we look at how bad was the outcome and who did it. And we mm -hmm. want to see the person who did it punished. So Just Culture works to sort of push that back a little bit in time, go back to some perhaps some earlier concepts of justice. But the punitive culture is, is a piece that we've had to address because that, that uh, sort of squashes psychological safety and the willingness of people to raise their hands. And then the no harm, no foul, where we, we just turn a blind eye to risky behavioral choices until harm has occurred. So both of those issues are front and center for us uh, in the just culture movement. Thanks, David. So you've given, I think, a good understanding in terms of why the movement even has, has happened in, in terms of response to some of those aspects. So, I mean, it, it's somewhat implicit, I think, of what you've just been describing, but maybe just to provide a bit more overtness around it, where, the, where does the justice come from this, I guess, in terms of calling it a just culture? Yeah, you know, the, it, it's, uh, th there is a long history back from uh, the Hammurabi Code. I mean, for thousands of years, we have as a society been, uh, been chasing justice. It, it's got theological roots, be merciful and just, almost as a command to us. Uh, now the question is, okay, what does justice look like? And as a society, we've been trying to figure that out. You know, Alec Baldwin, the actor, 
shoots the the producer or, or the director on the set of a movie out in, outside uh, uh, in New Mexico. And the, and the question is, a society is, what are we going to do with Alec Baldwin? Um, George Floyd, uh, you know, Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis has his knee on the neck of, of George Floyd and ultimately takes his life. What are we going to do with that police officer, Derek Chauvin? So uh, when events occur, we're all trying to figure out as a society, what is the just response to that? And we do it at a societal level and we do it inside organizations. And healthcare is trying to figure out what does justice look like for, for two broad, I think, purposes. One is what is just, because justice is a deeply held human value. And, and you'll know people, people don't march for patient safety, but they do march for justice. And, and so justice is a deeply held human value. The other one is, can justice, a better form of justice, get to get us to the outcomes that we're trying to promote? So in the U.S., as the patient safety movement has given recognition to, you know, first the IOM report said 44,000, 98,000 deaths each year in the medical industry. It's gotten as high as 440,000, the, the number three leading cause of death in the U.S. after heart disease and cancer is being killed by your health system. And, and so now the issue is, does a better system of justice actually help us reduce that iatrogenic harm? So those are the goals in doing it. So the just culture tries to reframe how we think about accountability. What should, what model of justice, uh, because we value justice, but what model of justice actually is going to help us get to the outcomes that we want? And so as a, as a CEO, I think you have both sides of that. You have you know, what, what is really being fair to our employees when things don't go you know, as planned? But secondly, uh, what does that system of justice do in terms of our ability to create optimal outcomes and be high reliability organizations producing the great outcomes we want and avoiding the, the inadvertent uh, outcomes or harms that we don't want? So I think it's, it's yeah, you set the stage certainly well, and, and it, I think this is going to get very interesting and complicated as we keep moving forward. But one of the other um, uh, pieces that you've you've introduced, I think, in the conversation, and maybe we can explore that in a bit more detail, too, is around psychological safety. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something that uh, has been, I guess, a bit of a North Star here in Canada, anyways, for the last decade or so in terms of organizations trying to create safe spaces or psychologically safe spaces. So how does that differ or complement what you've been talking about so far ar around just culture? Is it, is, is it different? Um, do they complement each other? Uh, how do they fit together? Yeah, it's, you know, when we first started doing just culture, uh, the concept of psychological safety, you know, wasn't out there. I wasn't sort of aware of it. If it was, if the genesis was there, I didn't know about it at the time, uh, but it has definitely taken off. It, you know, it, we have a lot of clients who are very interested in creating psychologically safe workplace environments. Uh, personally, I have a tortured relationship with psychological safety, and I see them as two different uh, issues. There, there's a part of psychological safety that says, if I made a mistake, I need to be able to come forward and, and say I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the issue is, is some part of psychological safety it is about this notion that I want to bring my whole self to work. Can I be authentic at work? So some of the psychological safety movement you'll see tied to that notion of authenticity. Uh, and part of that comes out of just having inclusive work environments. Can I come, can I bring who I am into the workplace? 
Uh, and, you know, Dale, you and I are old enough. We spent our whole lives being told what conduct is appropriate in the workplace. Things yeah. you think you can be yourself at home, but when you come in the workplace, this is the workplace environment. Mm-hmm. So that whole notion of be yourself at, at work uh, is, is to me a bit of an odd concept. My, you know, my wife even says, you know, don't even bring your whole self home, Dave. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we want, we want your better self at the dinner table. And, and so it, it, you know, and we as a family sort of manage that. It's not like we say to our kids or, or to, you know, our in-laws or whoever's there, just, just be yourself. It's like, no, <laughs> there's, there's a code of conduct for the Thanksgiving day dinner. And, and you have to align with that. So, you know, we, I live in Fort Lauderdale and our offices are here, but in the South, we have, you know, elder gentlemen, uh, older gentlemen who will refer to women as honey or sweetie. And it's like, you know, that's, that's nice that they do that. I I don't know if it's a term of endearment for them, uh, but, you know, in our offices, it's like nobody comes in and says honey or sweetie. And the person that does, we quickly say, that's not how we refer to women in our workplace. We just don't do it. And it, it is really sort of conduct unbecoming uh, our better selves. It, it, it's, 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 it's not, it's a pejorative word. Uh, now, it, it doesn't mean that that older surgeon want, means any harm from it, but it's like there's, a, there's conduct for the workplace. You know, feel free to call people in your everyday life, honey or sweetie, but just don't come into the workplace and do it. So the psychological safety piece is, Psychological safety is, is, yes, come to work. And we want you to be able to express your, your culture. We want you to be able to express ideas uh, without fear that those ideas are, are you're going to be demeaned for having a particular idea in the workplace. But there are some ideas and things that you bring to work that simply are inappropriate in the workplace. Here in the U.S., given our very uh, contentious political environments, there are a number of hats you can't wear to work. You can't wear a MAGA hat. You can't, I and mean, there's a whole bunch of hats. Whatever, whatever political party you are, it's like, look, keep politics at home. Uh, keep that to the cocktail party. But it's not, the place in the workplace is not the place for it. So some of the things that we hold very near and dear to our hearts, we just say the workplace isn't the place to express that. So Really, I see it as sort of bringing your better self to work or your work-appropriate self. It, it's come to work. There's a code of conduct for how a diverse group of people can get along and, and, and produce the outcomes we want to produce. So I, there's a bit of tension between psychological safety and just culture because the, the psychological safety is the noble part. It is, yes, we want you to bring as much as of who you are, your authentic self, to the workplace – the just culture part sort of draws that line as to when have we left an appropriate authentic self and into conduct unbecoming in the workplace. So if you have a prejudice, uh, a gender, race, national origin, religious prejudice, leave that at home. Um, and, and you know you have the rights to be who you want to be off hours. But when you come in the workplace, there are expectations that we have about how you express yourself. And that's where there's a tension between the two. because we don't really mean authentic self. We mean your your better self, your work appropriate self. And in that context, psychological safety and just culture work together because one is the aspirational, uh, and the other one is is I guess you, just culture would say is aspirational in the sense that workplaces are special places that we're not. This isn't this isn't the debate at the the family Thanksgiving dinner. This is a workplace, 
and there's a way to be appropriate in the workplace. Yeah, I guess as one of uh, one of my colleagues uh, from another organization, I think described it as you know those parts of yourself that are aligned to the organization's mission. Um, is that consistent, I guess, with the just culture side of things of what you've been describing? Yeah, it, exactly. The, the difficulty here is the tension when uh, I work in an organization that might not be supportive of what even socially we just deem yes. the right thing. So I could work uh, with a group that is is generally having a bias. And now the question is, is I'm going to advocate for something that the organization uh, doesn't like to advocate for. And, and, and yet maybe society is pushing it. Mm-hmm. So here, um, you know, in the States, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have universal health care. Uh, so does everybody come in, in, in the workplace, promote universal health uh, care? So that, you know, you, you, to some sense, sometimes you're going to be the martyr. You're going to say, I think we should have a better workplace. And, and ultimately what we're doing as an organization is not where we should be. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a tension that we always have, right? Because somebody had to create the movement in the first place. So if it was creating an inclusive environment uh, uh, for the LGBTQ community, you know, who was going to start to advocate for that? And, you know, so even if your organization wasn't necessarily supportive at the time, how do we sort of push internally? So that's a bit of that tension. So Yes, in general, align with the organization's values, but also we'll sort of see social movements sort of fit within there where every one of us hopefully can start to steer an organization uh, toward a better place. Okay, thank you. Um, so, I mean, my next question is is perhaps a bit leading in some respects because, I mean, your organization obviously is in, you know, attempting to help other organizations to achieve just cultures. So I, I know if through our own ex- experience here at CHA Learning, we have sometimes been approached by other organizations that say, you know, looking for that magic pill or that, you know, panacea, like, can you just deliver some professional development for us that will teach us or our staff about just culture? Um, you know, can you do an, a one hour, you know, e-learning course or something like that? I mean, What's your take on that as sort of a uh, as a directive um, from organizations that are trying to achieve, you know, an aspirational sort of outcome or culture, as you've described? Um, you know, would this work? Um, why or why not? Or, and maybe what would your position on that be in general? Yeah, yeah, we, the, you know, there are uh, there are one hour introductions that get pretty people pretty far down the road. We actually teach, uh, uh, you know, a uh, you know, one-hour leadership overviews, uh, and part of this this podcast is sort of somewhat like that overview. That we'll, we'll teach um, we'll teach a, a one-day class. Uh, we actually have for our online managers class. We'll do a, a two-day class. We actually have a week-long class. So you know, I could I could teach we could teach just culture an hour. We could teach it in a week. Uh, in a week, it's really looking at where we're at as a society, how we got to where we're at. And, and how we can really steer. So the philosophical leaders that push this, whether it's from the human resources side, uh, gener- generally high level team members who are really gonna push the organization, uh, the 40 hour class is a good thing. But even in an hour, uh, we can talk about uh, how uh, just culture differs. Now, I, I do have to preface, 
everybody in, you know, if you, if you Google just culture, you'll find a lot of models. You'll find our model. You'll find Cindy Decker. You'll find James Reason, a professor, uh, University of Manchester, wrote a book called Human Air. There's a lot of people have takes on just culture. We teach a very specific brand of just culture and that we teach uh, what we call a duty and breach-based system of justice. That is, it's not about the outcome that occurred. It's about the quality of our choices. We actually had a, a, a CEO, uh, sorry, chief medical officer hospital in Pennsylvania say, we will judge the quality of a person's choices, not the triumph or the tragedy that those choices produce. So on one hand, you could say a very simple takeaway for a leader is to say, imagine a physician peer review uh, where the physicians in that peer review who are judging the conduct of another physician are blind to the actual outcome. We don't know what happened from your choices. We only, uh, we only know the quality of your choices. And, and so we judge the choices independent, sort of as your son. It's like, well, I was throwing snowballs. Well, did anybody, you know, I was throwing them at cars and they went by. Well, did anybody get hurt? Well, that's not the relevant question. Uh, whether somebody got hurt or not is, is a separate issue. Do we have to take care of somebody we hurt? But mm -hmm. the, what we're going to judge is the quality of you standing on the corner throwing snowballs at cars that go by. So there's that piece. There, there is, there is um, uh, being blind to the outcome. And then what we do at a, at a very simple level is we, we say the best system of justice goes back and looks at intention. And there are five behaviors. I know this might be a little out of order here in the because uh, because I know you prompted with me with questions, but the, okay. the, we talk we, we talk about five uh, five behaviors, and, mm -hmm. and let me describe those five behaviors. And uh, the first one's human error. There are things that we do that we never intended to do. Um, you know, as simple as just not locking the bathroom door when I go in to use the bathroom. Uh, th there there are just simple errors that we make. Uh, and in healthcare, we talk about medication error. Uh, there are a lot mm -hmm. of mistakes that we can make. We can make diagnostic errors, uh, but there are the things that immediately it's like, well, I didn't mean to do that. And sometimes on the road, that's a, I, I missed a stop sign. It was like, yeah, it was there in hindsight. I just missed it. And I ran the stop sign. The second one is what we call at-risk behavior. At-risk behavior is all the choices that you and I make, uh, convincing ourselves we're in a safe spot. Uh, here in South Florida, if you go onto our roads, uh, we have some pretty wild drivers in South Florida, but uh, well, people do not signal lane changes. Uh, they speed. But what's really weird here, and it's uniquely a, a, a South Florida issue, is uh, people will turn left out of the right-hand lane. They'll turn right out of the left-hand lane. They, they do, you know, when they see that the, this, everybody else has stopped, they'll be in that left-hand turn lane and they'll go right. And it's like, oh my goodness, where'd you? But but it, it is it is so it's so normal down here. But at-risk behavior is all those things that we do to somehow convince ourselves we're in a safe spot. Uh, in healthcare, uh, hand hygiene falls into that category often where I, I just left the last room, I washed my hands, and, and you know, I didn't wash my hands going into the next room. Or patient ID. Uh, in the States, we have the two-patient identifier rule from Joint Commission that says we're going to look at two independent identifiers. But once I begin to know my patient, it's like, well, why do I really need to do that? And so you see like a 50% rate of hand, or hand hygiene and two-patient identifier compliance, where we have, uh, we have this normalization of deviance uh, is what it's called, where, where the whole group is drifting away from, learn, uh, from doing the right thing. That's the at-risk behavior. Mm -hmm. The third, the, now the, the, those two, we say dress differently than the other behaviors I'm going to talk about. The human error, uh, we say to, to live with, to console, to accept. 
uh, live with the fact that you and I are inescapably fallible human beings, but because I didn't intend it, there's no reason to punish somebody for making a mistake. So rather than criminalizing error, we say live with the error and design better systems around human beings and help human beings make better choices in those systems. The at-risk behavior, we say to coach. Uh, if I'm doing something that I think is reasonable and you see me doing that, you can turn to me and say, hey, David, you know, here's a better path or, or you know, do you understand the risk that you're taking doing what you're doing? So uh, those two, we say, address in a non-punitive kind of in environment. Mm -hmm. the, the third, the fourth, and the fifth behaviors are the more culpable, to use a lawyer word, a more culpable behavior. Uh, the third one's reckless behavior, or uh, what the British will call gross negligence. Uh, that is, uh, I saw, I was taking a significant and unjustifiable risk, and I saw that I was doing it. I knew, I had this knot in my stomach. I intellectually knew what I was doing was dangerous, but I chose to do it anyway. Uh, drunk driving might be Mm -hmm. uh, universally seen as reckless behavior. It's the surgeon who picks an instrument off of the floor and says five second rule. There's, there's no way in that context you could think you're in a safe place, uh, but you choose to do it anyway because you're upset, because for whatever value it is, uh, you choose to gamble with the, with the life of the patient, with uh, the, the, even the satisfaction of the patient. There's, if I choose to make that gamble, you expose yourself to disciplinary action. The, for, the fourth behavior is a, a, what we call knowledge, knowingly causing harm. Um, if you go back to healthcare privacy laws, for example, uh, we, we, we didn't really set up the privacy law to prevent people from making mistakes. It was really, you know, don't knowingly go in. You know, if George Clooney or Beyonce is, you know, is in your hospital, don't go peek into their medical record uh, where you, you know, as soon as you see their private health information, you're knowingly causing harm. So we say that that knowingly causing harm subjects yourself to disciplinary action. And then ultimately, uh, the fifth value is, is purpose, which is pretty rare. Uh, when I set up the special goal of causing harm, uh, but it happens. It happens, mm -hmm. uh, it happens with assault from the workplace, active shooters. It, it, um, uh, I could even go in and breach privacy because I want to diss the person whose record I'm going into. I want to use it against them. So we talk about five behaviors, human error, at-risk, reckless knowledge, and purpose. And, and rather than criminalizing all five of them, whether that criminalization is really from the state or whether that's the workplace, it, it is to say, look, think of the human error and that risk behavior is different. The, the reckless knowledge of purpose, you do at your own peril. You go down those roads, you put yourself in a place where we may take uh, disciplinary action against you. Um, the human error and that risk, though, let's separate. Let's, let's, let's accept or console the error. Let's coach the person engaged in that risk behavior back onto the safe path. And then key, tying back to the earlier concept, is let's do all this independent of harm. So if, if I see a surgeon not participating in the pre-surgical timeout um, because he thinks it's silly, he thinks, oh, I've never had a wrong site surgery. Why, do, why, do you, why are you imposing these rules on me? They don't apply to me. I've never had a wrong site surgery. I've never done anything that that protocol is trying to prevent. Yet we all know that if we're if we're trying to improve surgical safety, that pre-surgical timeout is the right thing to do. So mm -hmm. we steer the surgeon back onto the safe path. So at, at a very high level, it, the long-winded answer to your question is, you know, can you talk about this in an hour? And the answer is yes. You can say separate those human errors and those at-risk behaviors. 
uh, reject the notion of no harm, no foul. Um, and, and people can walk out of a one-hour session trying to apply that in the workplace because the, the again the outer the, the broader culture is how bad was the outcome and who did it. And when when you see it on the six o'clock news is who's going to be punished for this outcome? And it's like no, we're not we're not punishing the outcome. Um, and and the, the funny part about this, and and I'm probably going to come back to your 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 son more often than you probably anticipated, Dale. But the <laughs> The you know the the I to really teach a child that that it's you know you don't often you don't have direct control of the outcomes you're going to produce mm-hmm. you know we're going to design a good system around you think about when you give him the keys to the car when he's 16 or whatever the initial driving age is in Canada you give him the keys to the car and it's like okay we've designed the best system we can around you we we we've, we've given you training. We put you in a nice, safe car. We've done everything we need to do. Now, what's on you is your choices. The quality of your choices when you leave the, the, the driveway is what's going to dictate the likelihood of you getting into an accident. Now, we as a parent can say, look, get into an accident. You are barred from driving until you're 18. You know, one accident, that's enough. To some extent, that is our broader culture. And, and we have we have zero tolerance policies in healthcare. We have never events. We have we've said to healthcare providers, one and done. If mm-hmm. if you engage in this, we take you off to the town square and we flog you. And and it's I don't think we can say that to a kid. And, and being the the parent of five kids, and I I got the fifth one who's just sixteen, is clearly we we haven't had an accident free uh, child rearing life. My wife and I. Uh, you know, we've had our share of kids accidents and we've been telling a 16 year old this likelihood you're going to get an accident next two years. So, you know, we, we want to put you in a car that we can afford to rebuild when you do get into an accident. <laughs> um, but the but the idea is it's it's my my son, the 16 year old, doesn't have control. He has some control of the outcomes he produces, but not absolute, nor does a surgeon, nor does a nurse or a pharmacist. All the best that you can do is walk through the threshold of the hospital each day and dedicate yourself to making the best possible choices you can each and every day. But what you bring into that hospital is the fact that you are inescapably fallible. That doesn't go away. Uh, we can improve your skills. We can, we can give you training to reduce the rate of error. But at the end of the day, you're still inescapably fallible. And if I put you into a thin system, a poorly designed system, I may put you one human error away from harming a patient. You know, and that's on us as leaders is do we really want to have that kind of outcome uh, and put an employee so perilously close to harm? So we as leaders have to say how we can design a good, robust system. And then as individuals in those systems, you know, how do we make good choices along the way? And so I think that simple message is it's it's not about outcome. Now, um, here in the U.S., where we have a, a very punitive culture in the tort liability system, where if you make a mistake, you get sued. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, well, you don't, if you make a mistake, you don't get sued. If you make a mistake that causes harm, you get sued. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's, but it, it's one error that leads to harm and you're uh, the victim of a lawsuit. Uh, state of Tennessee uh, at Vanderbilt, where Redonda Vaught got um, uh, uh, prosecuted, the, the people, the state of Tennessee said, look, uh, we know that people make mistakes. So uh, if you're going to be reckless, you do so at your own power. Don't recklessly endanger your fellow citizen. Uh, and that applies in just about every jurisdiction. So Canada uh, will undoubtedly have to say there's a line that you cross as a citizen 
that, you know, even if you didn't cause harm, the state is going to take action. But then what Tennessee said is, because people make mistakes, we can't punish every person that makes a mistake because we'd all be in jail because we're all making mistakes. If we're if it's, if it's a citizen like you and I, it's going to be on the road. Um, if it's your healthcare provider, it's probably going to be in the workplace that you make a mistake. And the issue is we're not going to punish everybody that makes mistakes. But if you make a mistake that takes the life of another human being, which in the U.S. is about 100,000, if you're excluding healthcare, it's 100,000 lives a year. It is it is it is a it, well because we're a gun happy culture in the U.S. It is discharge inadvertent discharge of a firearm in the home. Uh, it is leaving the child in the back seat on a summer day, forgetting on the way to daycare that they were there, and they die in the hot car. Uh, there are a number of ways: it, food poisoning at home. The child got into uh, something that was uh, not food poisoning. Well, it could be food poisoning. Uh, we'd be a rather bad cook with food poisoning, but but you know. <laughs> chemical poisoning in the house, yeah. that type of thing where it's like, oh my goodness, we, we just lost a life here. Uh, so the, 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 uh, what Tennessee did though, is they, they essentially said, if you make an error that does lead to the death of another human being, that indeed is a felony. It is a crime. So, and, and we've done the same thing in workplaces is if I make a mistake that leads to considerable harm, it is on its face, the crime. And so we're, we're trying to repeal that, go back to uh, and that's only a more recent notion in the last couple hundred years. As, as we've gotten reliable as a society, we have raised the bar. You know, in the pursuit of high reliability, in the pursuit of perfection, we turned human error into a crime. So we want to backpedal on that one and ultimately say, look, humans are humans. are going to make mistakes. Uh, and ultimately, we have to learn from them and help design better systems around you and then help you make better choices in that system. And that's that's what you can control. So the message to employees is, is really this is about the quality of your choice. And, and as the, the CMO in Pennsylvania said, uh, you know, we'll hold you accountable for the quality of your choices, not the triumph or the tragedy those choices produce. And I think that's where rolls just culture into a, a simple message. It's 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 not so much about the outcome. The outcome is owned by the institution. Mm-hmm. You know, if we harmed a patient, but you employee, you individual in that system. It's the quality of choices that is where we're going to put our focus, knowing that you're an inescapably fallible human being. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, there's lots of questions going through my head, and I'm at the risk of asking any of them that may take us down another rabbit hole. But, but I do think that, I mean, some of what you're describing here, and I guess there is a bit of a two system type of approach to this. One is our, our I guess the measure of accountability and justice as defined by our legal systems, which may be different in different provinces, states, or countries, um, right? Where, you know, whether men's rear or intention, right, is measured as, as about how we define that versus the more social equity side of things or justice, uh, I think of what you're describing, if I'm getting that right. But the two do have to coexist, especially, I guess, in a healthcare system where, you know, that kind of accountability does become legal very quickly. Um, so, I mean, I guess, how do you how do you divide those two things? Or, I mean, do they coexist? Or does one need to sort of adapt to the other to sort of create, I guess, the just culture that you're you're speaking about? Because while an organization can, I guess, aspirationally seek the just culture that you're describing, this legal system is sitting outside 
um, just waiting to pounce, I guess, in some respects. So how do those two things work together? Yeah, I think in, in my lifetime, I don't, I don't think we'll see substantial change on the legal side. You know, in, in the regulatory side, uh, like here in the U.S. in aviation, uh, as an example, the Federal Aviation Administration says, let's try to create that safe environment, you know, independent from the external world. So in a highly regulated environment, the regulator can be uh, more proactive. But I don't think we're not going to change the fundamentals of the criminal law. Uh, without uh, a, a much more significant push. But everybody who goes down this just culture journey sort of sees that, you know, reframing how we think about societal accountability might be a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to do what you can do inside your organization. So you think of a, a, a system of workplace justice. Now, when a patient is harmed or, or, or the life of the patient is taken, to some extent, sort of all bets are off. And the, and the FAA will say this relative to an airplane crash. If the airplane crashed, we can't control what Congress is going to do, the White House is going to do. You know, the, the, we, we'd lost control at that point. But if, if it is a self-reported event where we haven't had that kind of loss, uh, we have control and we can create mm -hmm. that right kind of culture. So, it, it, the, you know, I, I worked with a hospital CEO who said, look, to all the staff, said, look, I can't control what the outside world does. They said, I know we have an obligation to our patients that's paramount. So we're going to do the right thing independently, independently of what the world says. And we'll just take our lumps when the world doesn't agree with us. Uh, so I thought that was a very noble uh, way yeah. of doing this. Um, but there's, there's, you know, there's a story, I think, for those who would listen to this, that we, we worked with uh, uh, South Carolina Hospital Association around uh, a demonstration project in Just Culture. And it related to mislabeled blood specimens. And, and I know any healthcare leader who will listen to the podcast will, will have a sense of frustration of, you know, one of the most simple things that we should be able to do is to get the right patient label on the blood, the right name. Uh, mm -hmm. So we worked at the hospital and, and they published so I could speak to it. Uh, it was part of a, a demonstration project in South Carolina. But they, 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 uh, the, the, the chief nursing officer of the hospital is growing increasingly frustrated to where, you know, the next person that, that mislabels a blood specimen is going to be terminated. So they, they put out the threat of sanction that if you deviate from policy, uh, you know, ultimately there's going to be a sanction attached to that. And th they went from what was 50 mislabeled specimens in a month down to 14. Uh, it, but th and that was through a heavy threat of disciplinary sanction. So does the threat work? And the answer is, well, yes, it works, but they couldn't get beyond 14. So mm -hmm. we did a demonstration project with the hospital association and this big uh, regional medical center to say, look, let's, let's go after another drop. So we said in 90 days, we'll drop it by 90%. So our, our goal, it, it was sight unseen 90% 90 days. And we went in and we essentially redesigned the process, not significantly, uh, but we, we, we said, rather than wait for the harm to occur, where the lab has said, yep, we got another mislabeled blood specimen, trace our way back to the nurse and let's fire the nurse, is we identified what were the key behaviors and actually labeling blood. We got rid of half of the task. Uh, there were four factors, actually, name, date of birth, medical record number, account number that they had to do. We dropped half of those off. So we simplified the task. We added uh, one step, what we call the final check, which is when I draw blood, 
I, I, I put the label on that blood and then I hold that blood up against the armband of the patient and I read out loud the last three digits of the medical record number. That was the behavior. And, and we got the chief nursing officer to say, uh, which I'm, you know, my, you know uh, people will grimace when I say this, is to say to, the, to her team is we will never punish somebody for a mislabeled blood specimen. So they totally flipped, went from if you're the next person who does this, you're going to get punished to we will never do this. But that doesn't mean we threw accountability out the window. We said, if you're going to try to reduce the rate of mislabeled blood specimens, we got to go to the front end. So we did the work in a week's time to redesign the system. And then we ultimately said, there's one behavior, only one that you have to do each and every time. Now, there were, there were a few behaviors. You had to do patient ID when you went into the patient room. Uh, but there was one, that key behavior, which was what we called the final check. And we said, if you choose not to do this final check, this may not be the right place for you to work. Mm-hmm. We're going to coach you. We're going to coach you once. But this is, and, and people will use the, the terminology like red rules. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a, the putting focus on the behavior that will reduce the likelihood of the mislabeled blood specimen. So when you do have a mislabeled blood specimen, when those, those numbers don't match up, raise your hand right then and there. You're not going to get sanctioned for that because you did the final check and you caught it. Mm-hmm. We're not going to hold you accountable to the outcome, but we are going to say every time you do this, and we would do it out loud. So the nurse would read out loud or the phlebotomist would read out loud 547, 547, 547. So that they were focused in on it. So the manager could hear it. Even the patients would ask, why are you doing that? Well, I'm confirming that the label that went on this blood matches you. And, and uh, in 90 days, they got a 93% drop in mislabeled blood specimens. While simultaneously saying, we won't ever discipline you for a mislabeled blood specimen. But we will hold you accountable for doing the final check. And if you choose, you're going to make an error. We even modeled it out as 2%. Of the time you're, you're going to make a mistake, but if you choose not to do that, if this becomes your pattern of behavior, if you choose not to do the final check, you're probably not going to be working here. So it's shifting accountability. A lot of people talk about just culture, and I hate the language non-punitive, blame-free. Those are not words you'll see in our representation of just culture. This isn't about loss of accountability. Uh, just culture is about uh, greater accountability. Matter of fact, the one of the leaders of the Minnesota Hospital Association, he said, he said, he says, if if you think just culture is about being the dove, he says you got it wrong. This is about being the hawk. Uh, and, and what he meant there is we're we're a hawk after harm has occurred, but we're a dove until harm has occurred. Mm-hmm. He says we want to be the hawk on the front end. We we want to say if I see you going off in a direction that's risky, I'm immediately going to help you get back onto the safe path. And that peer-to-peer coaching, the things that we do to be hawkish toward not causing harm, that's the central tenet of just culture. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, So I think building on some of what you've been describing there around, I guess, peoples and and attitudes, I think, um, I mean, how does, you know, uh, you know, going from you know, the threat of, of sanction to, you know, th- you know, no sanction and a promise of, of acceptance. Um, I mean, how does adopting a just culture approach like you've been describing here, how does it change the way people work? Um, how does it 
change, you know, the the morale in a workplace, um, and and maybe even again, maybe a bit leading, you know, how does this show up in terms of what we as as a as a public will see and experience when I walk into a workplace which has adopted um, a just culture approach? Yeah, you know, as a as a patient, you know, we we don't. Um, Many of our clients come to us through the safety door and say, this is about how we create a safer healthcare system because that's on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have, we have clients who come to us to say, you know, as part of this also, the, our DEI work is going to be tied into just culture because mm-hmm. uh, we want to have a learning culture, but we want to have, a, we want to have expectations. We want to have expectations that you're going to be a good coworker to me and, and that, that, um, that, that we're going to have a good inclusive work environment. So it applies across all values. But we've had clients that say, look, customer satisfaction, this has as much application as customer satisfaction as it does to patient safety. So, so if, you think, uh, if you think about all the values we hold from patient privacy, protection of the environment, financial stewardship, patient safety, employee safety, uh, it, it is intended to make us better at every one of those. So, so the, 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 the customer coming in the front door of the hospital, if there's conduct that says we greet every person when they come through that front door, if we see a person walking around the front of the hospital trying to figure out where they need to go, every employee will assertively walk up and say, can I help you? Can I help mm-hmm. you find your way? It's, hold, it's us engaging in the optimal behaviors along the way. So they should see what we're looking for in that highly reliable organization is that, you know, because you can walk into a restaurant and say, wow, they are good at what they do. You know, right. th- their service is wonderful. Maybe their food's okay, but their service is wonderful. Uh, or or they're, they're, they got, you know, all aspects are, are, are they're wonderful at what they do. So they, the, 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 the customer should see it. Uh, you know, the, the employee uh, should feel that they're working in that safer space. You should have higher retention you will have less uh, disciplinary actions overturned uh, because we messed up the justice piece. So from an HR perspective, it creates a better place to work, a preferred place to work. But anybody who holds on to a value, if my value, if I'm the, if I'm the privacy officer or the data integrity officer, I have to believe that just culture is actually going to help me reduce data breaches because we're, we're going to be as good as the system I can design and, and my team members doing the right thing will produce the optimal results around that particular uh, value that we hold. So ultimately, we're going to see it in outcomes. Because I know you were going to ask me about measurement. How do you measure this? Mm-hmm. You know, because you can, you can measure outcomes. At the end of the day, uh, a hospital leader can say, look, this is about outcomes for me. And it is. And, and actually, justice being one of those outcomes. But, you know, whether it's privacy or patient safety, it's that. The other thing you should see is, is down below the outcomes is you should see continuously we're working to, to make systems better and better, and continuously we're working to make better and better behavioral choices. So do I, do I see uh, ideal choices across every one of our values? And then down below that, you have the more cultural markers like psychological safety, where we do, um, we do surveys with staff, surveys with leaders to say, how does it feel to work in this environment and employee engagement surveys? Um, but, you know, everybody, like I said, nobody, nobody marches for patient safety. We march for justice. And everybody, um, everybody has a deed on what justice should look like in the workplace, whether it's a glass ceiling 
for a class of employees. Uh, you know, it, it, it is it is does this environment does this environment appear just for me as an employee? And so, for an employee, they should they should see the, it as a preferred work environment. Uh, for the customers, they should see it in the outcomes that you produce. But really, across all values, and, and and our pitch would be: you can't simply do this for patient safety because it's really you know it, it, we, we had a hospital who. Um, the, the, the valet manager who parked cars out front, who made mistakes. Sometimes you give the car to the wrong person who comes up. You don't confirm the ticket. Yeah. He, the valet manager said, this is just as applicable managing the valet service out in front of the hospital as it is back in the operating room. And, and the, the, those that do just culture successfully really see this as, as this is just how we're going to treat each other when, when we as individuals don't get it right, whether by its mistake or by at-risk behavioral choice, or even knowingly, you know, causing harm in the workplace. Um, you get that right, and and employees will prefer working in that kind of environment. Yeah, I I, th I think as you've been talking, I, I'm sort of, you know, um, rewriting some of you know the introduction that I sort of had at, at you know because I, in terms of the focus on safety. And, and wanting to better understand how we can include that in, in the concepts about inclusivity, I guess, as well. Because, um, uh, and how those two things um, come together, I think, in some of the work that you're doing. Uh, because I, you know, we did a, a podcast a year ago, uh, talking about, you know, EDI, or equity, diversity, inclusion. And one of the, the guests was talking about uh, their approach to it was a, uh, she called it Jedi, right? But the J was the justice part of it. Uh, um, and a, as an important part of the, uh, uh, the model that she was sort of applying. So, um, so I think what you're describing here is something which is much more holistic um, in terms of not just uh, the clinical care and services that we provide, but how we interact, I guess, as a as a workplace community. Is that fair or? Right. Yeah, because a human error is a human error, whether it is, and it's interesting if you, if you look at that space, just about like an inclusive environment, you know, I'm not going to go through my life and always say the right thing. I'm going to have the inappropriate comment. I'm going to, I'm going to react to something where it's like, oh my goodness, that was the wrong reaction. Uh, you know, the, you, you can't have, um, you know, more, you know, if we hold inclusive, caring, supportive environment as a value, I'm going to mess up. Uh, and, and sometimes I'm going to get frustrated. I'm going to lash out, uh, it, you know, and, you know, we're not, you're not, you might not fire me for that, but you might say, you sit me down and say, Dave, you know, that was really the inappropriate thing. But like, you know, I just broke. I reached a, a point where I just, I, I had to say something to my colleague. You know, and, and you know whatever the behavior was. So the it, the, the same system of workplace accountability, the same system of workplace justice applies. It, it, they're just different values. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, I think you know the intro is is people come through the door to just culture because of safety, mm -hmm. and, and they really believe we need to create that safe, open environment. And it is, I have to say, it's tougher when I raise to a leadership team. You know, when uh, when uh, a female employee raises her hand and says, uh, I want to be psychologically safe to to raise my hand and say, I believe there's a glass ceiling. I believe that women cannot get reported out of this position. That's tough. 
That mm-hmm. is a that's a tougher thing to create than a patient safety. The patient safety is the easy part. When you start saying, I want people to report to say, is is do you see something in this workplace that doesn't work? Um, you know, can I report this? Um, you know, that that's that th- those issues are a little bit more difficult, you know, and it, and it takes a lot more commitment from the organization to say, we want to do this. You know, even if you I just watched the movie Barbie, I've probably been not contemporary by ton podcast, we'll forget about. It. But you know, the Barbie and but you know, you go to, to Mattel's leadership team and it's all men, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it, you know, it, and they just put it right in front of you in the movie. It's like, okay, is this a is this a wacky world? You know, and, and when you talk about inclusion, often it's yeah, inclusion is is nice, you know, for rank and file on the floor, but what does inclusion diversity mean at the leadership levels? Those are uncomfortable conversations. And so, you know, really creating psychological safety to say, hey, wait a second, maybe, maybe, maybe our leadership team should look different. Now, you're, you're going to edit that out, probably. Uh, probably <laughs> no, no, we'll reason. leave it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, we have to, we have to turn around, look in the mirror and say, hey, wait a second, what do we need to do? The world is shifting, I, I think, to, to uh, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, I'm not sure if Barbie gave the right impression there because leadership teams are shifting. And you know, that you know, we're, we're over this next 20, 30 years, we're going to see a more significant shift that way. But the point there is, is I, I think some cases, the patient safety piece is the easy piece of it. Mm-hmm. The hard piece is when you start talking about how we create, we create uh, equity, how we create fairness in the workplace, and how we do that and creating psychological safety around those types of things so that we can really raise our hand and say, are we doing this? Are, are, are we doing this in a right way? Can we have the dialogue about what we want to look like as an organization, how we want to treat each other? Uh, that Those are the more difficult things. And, and leaders are, are, are trying to address them. Uh, and I think the tenets of just culture give them some tools uh, to address them a little bit more effectively than we often do today. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and I'm, I'm okay with the Barbie reference or references to my son. Because I, I mean without trying to, to make any of these really important conversations trite or, or minimize them, right? I, I think it makes them very relatable. Um, and I think that's an important part of our, our message here. So um, so maybe building on some of those relatability pieces, I mean, you did reference around the importance of how do we measure what we're talking about this, and you've given some clear ideas, because I think, and maybe that is the answer, right? Because culture is, is a very amorphous, difficult thing to sort of define or look at or how do you measure a, any culture whether it's a just culture or, or whatever um so that, i mean that is the question but i think you've given you're breaking that down into i guess uh different aspects of that would, would you like to expand on that a, a little bit further david yeah yeah we, we actually have uh I, I think we have a set of core sort of uh measures that are behaviors Mm-hmm. It's one of those things, you know, like if I'm trying to lose weight, you might, Dale, you might say to me, it's okay, Dave, you got to eat less and exercise more. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you do that, you can't help but lose weight. You know, sure, I'll show back up to the, you know, to the session. And it's like, man, I'm gaining weight. It's like, okay, you're, you're cheating somewhere. You're not exercising or you're eating more than you said. Uh, but th- there are sort of nine measures I will just quickly go through that I think are, if you're hitting on these nine, you can't help but improve. So mm-hmm. one is reporting, reporting of hazards and near misses. We'll, we'll report events when harm has occurred, but how do we report hazards and near misses? Do we see near misreporting? So we want the psychological safety to see near misreporting get better. 
And then once those are reported, we want to say, are we investigating? Not stopping at, yeah, I made a mistake, but why did that error occur? Not stopping at the at-risk behavior, but why did this employee drift into the at-risk behavior? So being better at root cause analysis, being better at managerial investigations to get to the why. Mm -hmm. The next one is the continuous evaluation and improvement of systems and processes. That when we do have an event, how many of those are leading to uh, system redesign? So there's a measure there we can say that we're we're gonna we're gonna fix the system. We're not simply gonna turn to the employee and say, okay, you have to figure out how to fix this. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one's uh, transparency, transparency within the group, so that uh, so that individuals in the group understand what the risks are. Often, you know, the world's gotten so complex. It's you know, for some employees, for all of us, sometimes it's we just want to be told what to do. Give me the process. Give me the procedure. Uh, but to be risk aware, to understand how our conduct and our systems lead to harm. You know, what are the top three system vulnerabilities? What are the top three behavioral vulnerabilities? I could go to a data analyst and say, if we're going to have a data breach, where is that going to occur? And having some transparency that we know what's happening. We know how close we are um, to causing harm and having that transparency. Uh, the next one is, is uh, which we tend to suffer at in terms of the measures, uh, is peer-to-peer -peer coaching, that we can actually turn to another human being and say, I can coach my peer. We've come out, we, we've had a, well, healthcare as a whole, I've met physicians in private practice that say, yeah, my, my partner engages in risky choices, but I won't coach him because that's, that's his business. You know, we're independent physicians here engaging in the art of medicine. My job isn't to be my brother or sister's keeper. And it's like, well, but who is going to be? If not you, who? So ultimately creating that peer-to-peer -peer coaching that I can turn to a colleague. Uh, the next one is rejecting no harm, no foul, rejecting the severity bias uh, so that we see, uh, we, we see things happening pre-harm. Right? So rejecting severity bias. Uh, the next one is, um, I guess I'm at seven, uh, refraining from disciplinary action for errors and at-risk behaviors so that when we see a disciplinary record, uh, we, and this was in the U.S. for the ARC patient safety survey, the, the one that hospitals would universally score the lowest is around the punitive culture, that when errors occur, we punish, is refraining from disciplinary action from uh, errors and at-risk behaviors. The next one, uh, number eight, is um, having little tolerance for behaviors that knowingly and intentionally endanger safety, that reckless and above, because we have a tendency to turn a blind eye. We'll, um, we'll turn a blind eye to behavior that we all know is, is terrible behavior. I worked at a hospital where uh, that uh, one of the medical directors would berate nurses in the hallway. And, and, and everybody in the hospital knew about it. And everybody's waiting for the CEO to take action with the medical director. But the CEO kept refraining from taking action. And as, as we started to roll out Just Culture, it was like, look, the issue here, yeah, we'll participate. But if we really want the system to be just, hey, CEO, you need to deal with that medical director. And every person who is a healthcare leader uh, who listens to this podcast will know that person. That person works at their institution. It works in every institution, mm -hmm. whether it's Bob or whether it's Sally. We're turning a blind eye to somebody. And, and, and it's almost like it's comical in healthcare because it's that surgeon who throws instruments you know, across the OR when they're frustrated. And we just turned a blind eye to it because they're a high performer. In the US, they bring work to the hospital. So the Joint Commission actually had to come out and say, we're going to create a standard around disruptive behavior 
because we're just not dealing with it as a culture. So it's where I am crossing the line, you know, do we deal with it? And I think ultimately not at the throwing of the instruments, but in the DEI space, the inclusion space, hunting sweetie, you know, it's like, okay, you want to call people hunting sweetie, do that at the local restaurant on Saturday morning. But Friday morning, when you come into surgery, you don't re refer to anybody as honey and sweetie. And we're going to take action with you if you do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you got to be on the front end of that. And then the last one is just being fair and equitable in response to less than desired behavior. Uh, physicians are treated universally different than nurses. Uh, you know, without, I think this is worldwide that two, a nurse and a doctor both engage in the same behavior. Uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we discipline the nurse and, and we apologize to the doctor. Uh, well, I mean, not literally apologize, but that's the somehow it's perceived. It's, it's, we give the doctor a path for the exact same behavior where we discipline the nurse. So it's having uh, what is believed by the staff to be fair and equitable that we treat everybody the same. So those nine markers is if you are if you are tracking and watching those nine markers, you can't help but produce better outcomes. So those are the nine, and it, it, it's you know you you can look at outcomes, you can look at systems and behaviors. But ultimately, for us, those nine markers will tell the story. And we did this in North Carolina. We did uh, just culture implementation statewide, and we tracked, you know, through the time of the collaborative, those nine markers, uh, and, and every one of them approved as they they did just culture, uh, and viewed from staff level. So it's it's the it's the behaviors for us. To me, it's it's the behaviors we want to see change. And whether those are leadership behaviors or staff behaviors, is we have some agency to make this world a better place and to make healthcare a safer place. Let's do the work. And it's the choices that I make each and every day. We'll monitor those choices. And if we believe those choices are heading in the right direction, we'll get the result that we want. Uh, yeah, thank you. I think maybe before I pick up on some of what you're just describing, um, Maybe I can just ask, and maybe for our listeners, if you could share maybe a link or two to where we can get more, or they can get more information on some of those behaviors so that they, um, so they don't have to take notes maybe during the, the listening of this. Um, we can include those in the show notes at the end of this for them. Um, but you do talk about, you know, CEOs and leaders and in, in all of this and the roles that they can play. Um, so I guess maybe as, as we're coming sort of to a close of this, I can ask you to sort of bring those things together both in terms of you know what are the roles of you know leaders however we define those uh, big l or small l leaders in our workplaces um the roles that they can play in in shepherding forward uh the just culture model more specifically you know the role of our ceos um and you know, even maybe board members in terms of what they can do in this space so that it's not just lip service, I think as we so often might see about any change that are brought into organizations. And then just maybe at that organizational level, um, it's, you know, it's, it's in my own mind just because our own organization's just gone through our own uh, developing a new multi-year strat plan. And you know, so we went and revisited mission and vision and values again. And I'm just curious as to how, you know, something like that does show up for other healthcare organizations where just culture will find itself in terms of how an organization uh, might represent itself 
to the world outside of them. So I, there's three different levels there, but maybe they fit together in terms of where you might not take this. Yeah, let's see if we can fit them together. You know, it's interesting, uh, We, uh, particularly here in the U.S., where we have Catholic health systems, we'll have a, you know, they often have justice as one of their values mm -hmm. uh, because they have a strong commitment to social justice. And I, as CEO, said, you know, the name of our hospital is Mercy Hospital. Yeah. Like, how can you not be just? Our, we're Mercy Hospital. We're supposed to be merciful. So, so that that you will have institutions that will take those pillars, those core values, and have justice as one of those values. So, so, uh, but the the point where we're getting is is for us, just culture is top down. This this is it has to come from leadership, and it is it is it is leadership that's committed to understanding it. Um, I, I used to have a boss, and you're going to edit this out, I'm sure. But uh, I used to have a boss who said, he said, Dave, in the making of ham and eggs, he says, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Now, you have to think about that joke, but, uh, but he said, I need pigs and not chickens. And, and really, that's what we need of leadership teams and board members, is, is you have to be committed to understanding the ideas. We had a hospital in, in Canada that 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 whole leadership team went through a three-day just culture course. You, you you could just draw a line on the org chart. It was the top 30 or 40 people in a decade, but top 34 people in that organization went through this. The CFO, everybody did, where that leadership team said, look, is this what we want for justice inside our organization? And, and that they have to live it and sort of walk the walk. Uh, you know, we had a CEO of a power company in the US who was a private pilot and and committed the mortal sin of pilots, which is to land gear up. Uh, you know, it's 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 it is the it is the most embarrassing mistake of a pilot to forget to put your gear down. Uh, you know, and but he's up talking to his whole the, all the employees of the power company saying, "Look, this is me. I landed gear up. Here's the propeller. I still have it. All bent out of shape. You know, it's never going to. You know, it, it. This is what I did." And we're all inescapably fallible human beings. You know, we, we, we're not just promoting the perfect people to be the leadership team of a hospital. Is we're, we're promoting inescapably fallible human beings who have to embrace that and have that vulnerability. Uh, they, they have to lead, compassionately lead. They have to say that, you know, they have to, they have to role model the behaviors that we want. They have to be able to say, I made a mistake. They have to mentor uh, that next level of leadership uh, and, and ultimately be good coaches. So this starts at a leadership level and it works its way down from the leadership. So I think the message to, to CEOs is, is, is not simply to sit on the side and say, yeah, I hear, I've heard about just culture. I think that's nice. I think our patient safety officers running that, or we've delegated this to the HR generalists that it, it, it really happens there at the leadership level. We had leadership teams that would take an event you know, watch the Oscars, you know, last year, and we're all trying to figure out, okay, what did Will Smith do? Uh, he, slops, he slaps Chris Rock, right? Take that one into the leadership team, pull out your Just Culture algorithm, say, what are we going to do with Will Smith? Um, you know, and, and would we have done anything differently if this happened in a board meeting where somebody stood up, went up to a farmer employee, slapped that employee, um, you know, and what would we do? Uh, you know, so it, it's taking those events or, or the Alec Baldwin event. But ultimately, you get to the place of saying, "Well, what would I? What would we have done if it was Redonda Vaught, the nurse at Vanderbilt? What would we have done?" And then you work your way back to saying, "Well, what would we have done five years ago with the surgeon we fired? 
what do we get? What would we have done differently had we embraced these ideas? What do we think is the right thing to do? And start bringing this home to where that leadership team is exercising the ideas. Uh, and so, you know, they have to be the leaders in this. And then uh, the the staff will see it happen, but it works its way down the org chart. Is is what uh, is what our pitch is. So I don't know if because there were three items in my brain at my age can only pick two. Can only remember two. What is the uh, <laughs> What was the uh, third well, one? Yeah, well, we were talking about leaders or uh, broad strokes, um, and and then the CEO, sort of the executive um, of of an organization, and then the the mission, values, uh, vision side. So I think you got them all. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that. That, that would be remarkable. That was just a, that was a, a stroke of luck there. That wasn't any <laughs> capacity I really have. So well, just the but yes, but I, I do think that I mean your your points are, um, you know I, I mean I think think they're valuable, um, looking at any of those kinds of situations th- through a, a certain lens and um, right and I guess you know leads to that learning organization that you're describing, um, as well. Uh, you know what would what would you you know be it's one thing to say what would happen if you were in your executive room and somebody walked up and slapped somebody. That seems pretty violent, and you might have an answer for that. But if that person stands up and calls somebody an expletive, right, or if someone right uh, does something that's more even more subtle and um, around, um, you know, showing respect or lack of respect. I mean, so where where do you draw those lines? And I think perhaps calling those things out and having a uh, well, in the case, in the case of Oscars, you know, the employee that did the slap was just about to win the Employee of the Year award you know, half hour later in, in the meeting. And, yeah. and then it's, it's, it's a weird thing. And this is, it's not a bad one to look at because like, how did everybody in that audience, in that room, the leadership, the Oscars, how did they process this when it occurred? And I think we're all sort of stunned. And I think the leadership was stunned into like not knowing what to do. It, you know, later they said, okay, you know, here's the how we think accountability is played out. And sometimes you have to just you have to just sit on your hands and say, okay, we got to think through this, but this was real time. So it was yeah. tough. I, I have some compassion for th- that whole thing, not looking, it was like surreal as to what happened subsequently. And it was, th- this is our, our limitations as human beings, but, you know, to, to react in the moment on global television to try to figure out what was the right thing to do. Cause it's not simply uh, Will Smith's accountability is what was the accountability for the person running the show, the person who, who the CEO of the Motion Picture Association, what what was their action? What did we expect of them? And everything was moving so fast. But those types of scenarios, how do you how do you think through those and what accountability? Because we are going to have the surgeon who threw the instrument across the OR and almost hit a circulating nurse. And we've had a history in healthcare where you know, in some places we've turned a blind eye to that. And mm-hmm. and this is how society shifts. It, it's somebody had the psychological safety to say, I don't think this is right. And that person might have faced some, some fallout for saying it. But 20 years later, we're like, this is crazy. Anybody who throws an instrument across an OR, you're probably not going to have privileges or work at that hospital. But it took us a couple of decades, perhaps, to get us there. So, you know, kudos to those who stood up and said, this is not the kind of workplace that we want to have. And those, you know, they they created that social 
uh, movement and that shift to say we we want a better workplace. It's you know, and that that maybe is the tie back to psychological safety because you know we don't want that surgeon to be himself. We want the surgeon to engage in the behavior that we want and mm -hmm. engage in conduct becoming a surgeon. Yeah. So I mean, you've you've given us a lot to think about today. I feel like we've unpacked uh, you know a, a massive. Uh, box of culture. Um, I don't know that we've maybe got everything all started back into it, but that really is the job for some people, I think, to to listen to this and maybe think about it more. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe there's a follow-up conversation that we can have to sort of explore some of these things in more detail as well. Um, so any sort of final words to you, though, David? I'm really grateful for the time you've spent with us here today to, to really expose us all to the concepts of justice. Um, in how we deliver health services and, and our healthcare organizations. Um, but yeah, any other words for yourself? Yeah, you know, I, I, it's, uh, I think this is a, in the initial stages for a leadership team, this is just an exploration. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, it's uh, having the safe space to think about what accountability should look like. I think, you know, you, you, you started out talking about your son, you know, when, when uh, CEOs and chief medical officers, chief nursing officers are sitting at home at the dinner table with, you know, teenage children is have that, you know, we'll, we'll be in a course where they'll leave the course and go home in the evening, talk about these concepts at the dinner table, you know, the drunk driver, the drunk driver who kills versus the drunk driver who's just pulled over. What should the sanction be? And so it's really having a dialogue, having that exploration. So there's a lot of things that we can do, materials we can provide that just start introducing the ideas. And I think to some extent, just watching the six o'clock news and thinking about if I gotta be judge and jury, what are we gonna do? And, and as a judge, I have to be responsible for the systems that we produce as a society. So what should justice look like? I think if you just open that door and, and allow leaders to start exploring that question, because it, it's, you just have to have the safe space to do it as a leadership team. And ultimately say, is it is is putting the nurse in prison the right thing to do after that nurse made a mistake? A, a nurse who commits him, his self or herself to a life of service of patience makes a mistake as an inescapably fallible human being. And now we're prosecuting that nurse. And that's a dialogue a leadership team should have and say, is that what we want? For our patients, is that what we want for our employees? So I think that's the that's the step to take. And then, uh, yeah, sure, we we have prescriptive tools and things that can help, but it's it's opening up the the dialogue and saying, you know, maybe what we've always done isn't in our own best interests or the best interests of those we're trying to serve. So it's just start with that dialogue. And and of course, you know, we you know we have. By the way, you know, we do this in Canada in mining. That you talked about mining. We have mining. We have aviation healthcare, rail. So this is not simply a healthcare issue. It is you know, across the board is how do we think about how this works in workplaces? And then is it when it works in workplaces, does it spill out into society as a whole? That's our hope is that people take this away and, and say, you know, that, that maybe my local school should be thinking about this it, is how we think of holding uh, uh, teachers and students accountable. So you know, for us, it's a movement. We just want to help make the world a better place by really rethinking what justice looks like. And we, we hope that uh, hospital leadership teams, healthcare system leadership teams will engage and join the dialogue. 
Well, thank you for sharing in the dialogue with us here today yeah. um, and creating a safe space for that conversation to start. And I do hope that it does inspire others to reach out um, to yourself or to others um, and to consider how they might bring this into their own organization. So thank you again, David. I really appreciate all the time and, and uh, your experience that you've shared with us today. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.